presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, American Symphony. From Academy Award nominee Matthew Heineman, both IndieWire and Variety have named it one of the best documentaries of the year. A Hollywood Reporter says American Symphony is a moving love story, a celebration of art, resilience, and the mutability of the human spirit. American Symphony is available now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. We're coming to you live from Sundance 2024, the 40th Sundance Festival. Thanks to Amos Cochran of Edit Score for hosting our 2024 Sundance interviews. And its scores is a new music library with an innovative approach to finding music for your film. Today, I'm speaking with Julian Bray Noisecat and Emily Cassie about their documentary, Sugarcane, which premiered here yesterday afternoon. Julian and Emily, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So in Sugarcane, you explore the legacy of the St. Joseph Mission. This is one of many segregated residential schools for indigenous children that were mandated by the Canadian government in the late 19th century and were largely administered in Canada by the Catholic Church, by particular orders within the church. The last of these schools closed in 1997. And we're going to be speaking to that legacy, certainly, a little bit here today. Before we do that, I want to talk about the opening, because it's so interesting what you choose. You have chosen a lot of different things. The opening leads up to this phone call, Julian, you calling your father on his birthday. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But what I'm interested at this point is it's really striking to me what you did here at the beginning because it's really focused on landscapes. You see the school, you see Sugarcane itself, which is the reserve of the Williams Lake First Nation. Some of these shots are moving road shots, some are still. There's not a lot of direct speech, there's some stuff from the radio describing what happened in the residential schools. But I think the focus really falls on the landscape. Can you talk about why you wanted to start the film that way? Emmy and I, our collaboration really began, we actually met at our first reporting jobs almost a decade ago. So our collaboration is long running, I guess, at this point. But in the field, we would, at the end of the day, gather on the couch, smoke a little weed, which is legal in British Columbia, I should say on your podcast, and talk about the day, our production, and also like our ideas about the film. And one of the ideas that we consistently came back to was, you know, Williams Lake is a, a cow town on the old Caribou Gold Rush Trail that's home to what was once the second largest rodeo in Canada. And in that sense, it's a Western, right? It's a setting for a Western. And so we really wanted to be in conversation with that genre. And one of the things that happens often in a Western, right, is the outsider comes to town and that's the beginning of the action. And in a way, I'm a little bit of like an insider outsider, you know, this is my community, but I didn't grow up there. So we wanted to gesture towards that at the beginning. And then I can let Emmy talk a little bit more about how we chose to, to shoot that and produce that because it was actually really well thought out when we were in the field. Yeah, we tried so many different openings for this film. <laughs> we tried every scene. Scenes that are at the end of the film were the beginning of the film. Character lines that are no longer in the film started this film. And we kept coming back to the fact that the core of this story is really about family and coming back to the places that haunt you and trying to find truth within that. And the grounds of the mission are the, is this place where there's all this truth buried below the ground and, and that lives in the walls. And it, it's a landscape that's really been reclaimed by the flora and fauna. And it feels very alive there. 
We also knew we needed to ground people in what this history is and what this story is. There were many times that we wanted to do it without any sort of text cards, without any sort of context, but it was important for us that people really were set up properly to be able to go on the rest of this journey. So we gave the context we believe they needed, but we also wanted them to feel the space where all this began. And then Julian actually called his dad on his birthday, which we'll get to, but we drive to the mission almost every day when we're in Williams Lake because we're usually shooting there or sometimes we just go there to pay homage or feel the place. Jules and I would drive down the road and I'd film him and when you go there, you turn onto Mission Road and you go through Sugarcane. The reservation is on Mission Road still to this day and just down that road from where all these people live, where this community live, is this horrific place where they were removed from their homes and dragged to this kind of house of horrors and where they were abused by the church. So that was the idea in, in tandem with the idea of the land being alive. And then I think one other thing is that we really wanted to set up Julian and his father's relationship, Ed. And so carving and the fact that Ed is an artist and he has channeled so much of his pain into his carving work and so much of his life force into art what he's actually carving in that opening sequence is a nun with a Medusa's snake head, which most people probably wouldn't it's, know. It's, it's also a reference to an Andalusian dog. I can't do the French very well in Chien Andalou with the eyes. Yeah. So to have him carving that while Julian's driving there, and then Julian gives him a call and says, happy birthday, and that call is completely natural. He's He's actually been thinking about the mission all day because that was where he was born. Mm -hmm. And so it was just an incredible moment and very real moment. And it just, in the end, made sense that that's where the film begins. A lot of the early part of the film proper, we see the researchers working. They're trying to piece together what happened at these schools. You see them scrolling through microfiche, old newspapers, putting together kind of a classic murder board of villains and their victims. And then it's a hard cut on the strike to you. Julian, and you're at what I might call a competition of traditional dance and song. Can you explain this dramatic juxtaposition? I felt like it was a little bit like survival, despite all this. What did this mean to you? Yeah, throughout we wanted to use the archival almost as though it was memory or sort of this parallel land where our ancestors who were at this school were residing. And so we wanted to really juxtapose those images with children today and the life of the community today to remind people that these are the same people, these are our aunts, our uncles, our pets, all that. I think there's also some parts of the film that will be legible in, a, in another way to insiders to this place and community. So one thing that I think the average viewer who doesn't know this part of the world wouldn't fully understand is that actually the Kamloopa powwow is held on the campus of the Kamloops Indian Residential School, which is the place where over 200 potential unmarked graves were discovered that started this entire international story. And so that powwow was literally steps away from the apple orchard where that discovery happened. And that residential school, the, the residential school where the eyes of children, the, the documentary that we're using as archival in our documentary was shot. So it's also, these are also ghosts that reside in this specific place where that powwow is, is happening. We also wanted to make sure throughout the film, it's a conversation Julian and I had and pushed for in the edit, that the beauty of the native way of life, which we believe is a cinematic one worthy of epic storytelling, 
was represented because there are a multitude of hundreds of stories you could tell about this place and the incredible people in it. And we wanted to make sure that Indigenous joy was emphasized and that you could see what was taken away and what is now being built back up and reclaimed. And that was just as important to us, that this didn't have to sit purely on people's worst moments of their lives, their trauma, but also when they could celebrate with family, when Julian could win the powwow and his kia would stay there till midnight to watch him receive the award because she knew somewhere that he might win. It's a pretty incredible place with people who really love each other. Those family ties are so strong despite the fact that the government and the Catholic Church did everything they could to break them down. Let me jump to the archival just for a second because I think you can use it sparingly. Mm -hmm. uh, but interestingly, I mean, you're talking about it, this second thread of memory, I think it's fascinating. One of the interesting things to me is how we see scenes from the schools and we hear this repetition. We hear, I think, children twice being told to take their hands away from their face. We hear the Hail Mary, we hear the Lord's Prayer, I think twice at least, maybe. So it's kind of this repetitious sound. And to me, it really played off the songs that you and your father sing, for example. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about just your use of archival a little bit further? We thought really hard about how we were going to use archival in this film. Obviously, it's a verite film, so it's not going to use archival in the way that a maybe traditional talking head documentary might. And we really wanted to make clear one of the core ideas at the heart of this film is the truth, which is that this past is not past. It is very present in the lives of our families and participants. And, you know, the Indian residential schools, they have a death toll that is in the past and they have a death toll that is also in the present. And we really wanted to make clear that this is not just a history documentary. This is a documentary about this thing that happened and how it is still taking a toll in the present. And so I think the archival was really, really important to conveying that. And then I also think that to me, it was always incredibly moving to see the actual children at the school in these classrooms saying the Lord's Prayer, you know, exactly being told to stop fidgeting, to stop playing with their face. I think when you actually, see, when the viewer has to see that and confront that, I think that you feel it on a much deeper level. And I think that was so essential to the work that the film tries to do. We also wanted to use archival as memory. The kids in this film were the same age that Rick would have been when he went to the school. He and Charlene are our departure points for the archival throughout the film. So it's their memories that we're evoking of exactly what they would have experienced. What's really interesting, of course, is that this documentary was somewhat of a propaganda documentary about how you know, here's the life, day in life at one of these nice schools that the Canadian government made for all these Indigenous children who needed a place to learn and grow. And it's very sanitized and it's that kids are having fun and they're holding the priest's hand. But when you see that in juxtaposition to the horror that they actually experience, there's a tension in that, that we were really trying to get people to feel. And then when it's revealed at the end that in fact this was a documentary made at the time, to have that moment of realization of how the Canadian government and Canadian media was portraying what was happening at the time. And what we also know from the film and from what we were able to discover and show Charlene discovering is that there was an article about Julian's father and what happened to him at the school where he was born and found and that his mother was convicted, the only person who was ever convicted for 
infanticide or attempted infanticide or abandonment of a child for this entire system. This was in the paper. Like, people knew that something was going on there. It was in the Cracker Barrel Forum was the name of the column that discussed part of this event. Yeah. And this, this is in small-town conservative Williams Lake. And in 1959, they were asking hard questions about Indian residential schools. So part of what we're getting at there is there was this refrain when this news came out that, you know, oh, we never knew, which I don't know, man, it was on the CBC. It was there was commercials where you could adopt Indian children and it was in the local paper. And that's one of the uses of archival that's very different in the film, actually. There's one use of archival where we show that there are native kids who are up for adoption and it's a news video that would have been on the Canadian television saying, ah, Indian children, a product of broken homes. They're up for sale, essentially. And in the Canadian papers, there used to be photos of indigenous children that you could adopt. But what you start to realize through watching the film and why we chose to keep that in, even though it broke the language that we had established with the archival, we thought it was so important that you realize that the reason those children were being taken from their homes and were being adopted out is because the government and the church broke down the families and abused all of them. And some of those kids were actually born of the very priests who abused their mothers. And those priests were organizing adoptions. Yeah. They set up the Catholic Aid Society at the school this, that was run by the Catholic Church. They would bring young mothers, these kids at the school, to this unwed mother's home that they run, and then they would adopt out children into broader Canadian society. It's honestly just mind-blowing. And it, this level of what has happened here with the infanticide, with the adoptions, has not been discussed in the Canadian press. So you mentioned Rick, Chief Rick Gilbert. He's my fan. The relationship between you and your father, Julian, is really... It's too big for us to talk about today, in many ways. Uh, <laughs> watch the film, folks. It really opens up. And that, that initial call for on birthday becomes an incredible story throughout the film. Let's talk about Chief Rick, Rick Gilbert and Anna, because they're very compelling figures, which is interesting mm -hmm. because... Rick is so soft-spoken and not showy at all, and yet there's something about him. But he and Anna are extremely devoted to the Catholic Church, despite mm -hmm. everything. You show them looking at DNA analysis that suggests that he is the half-son of one of the priests, Father McGrath, the school principal. Can you talk about the complexity of their relationship with the church? This is something that we turned over throughout the entire production. In our part of the Native world, there is still a pretty significant connection to the Catholic Church particularly among Native people of Rick's generation. So there's so much there, so many layers there, because people of Rick's generation were the children who were taken away to these schools. Rick was taken away. He was the child, as you've, you've said, of, of a priest. He was also then abused at the school. And yet he remains faithful to the Catholic Church. He maybe has hard questions about the school, about the principles, maybe sometimes even about the institution itself, but his faith is still there. And I think that that complexity, that duality, that contradiction was something that we were really, really drawn to and we wanted to do justice to in a way that didn't flatten it out. We wanted to leave it in an ambiguous place. You know, one of the lines that Rick chooses to say to the oblate when he is in the Vatican is he's talking about what it says in the Bible and what it means to actually apologize and to actually take action for your wrongs and for your sins, right? And I think that deserves to be legitimate. I think that Native people of my generation and my father's generation, our attachment to the church is much less, but that generation 
is still very Catholic. And I, I don't want to poo-poo that. I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to just say that the Catholic Church is bad. The institution certainly has done a lot of wrong. And yet these people are still attached to it. And that's their truth. And that truth deserves to be seen and held. Rick, I'm just going to say a little bit about him because he is the most extraordinary man and the most courageous man that I've ever met. And I really got the honor of getting to be very, very close to him. A lot of the stuff that I shot, I spent a lot of time living with him and Anna and filming very intimately with them. And I have to say that as much as it is a struggle with his faith, it's also a, like a love story. It's these two people have found each other and found solace in each other and found something to hold on to in the midst of unbelievable trauma. Anna has a different story, but she and Rick shared that. And there's a lot of love between them. And to me, it's also a story about the, the power of that and the power of having someone who, like Anna, encouraged Rick to get this off of his chest. And of course, heartbreaking for us is that Rick passed away during the edit. We spent time in the hospital with him and it was really, really difficult because we loved him a lot and we really wanted him to see the film with an audience and get the standing ovation he deserves. We believe he was there yesterday, so I feel really good about that. But he got to release this horrific truth that had been weighing on him his whole life. He felt like a black sheep in the community and that's also part of what tied him to his faith. He had this feeling that he was not fully an insider. He was made fun of for being half white. He looked like the priest's son. You can see, when you see him, it's hard for people to be like, oh, this guy's indigenous. So he had to struggle with the fact that he never felt fully accepted by his own community. And one of the things that was really interesting was that he has this relationship with the white side of town. He, he goes to the white church in town, which we did film, but you know we had to cut some stuff. And he has relationships with Catholic organizations and Catholic groups and a lot of white people and he educates them. And so he really lives this kind of split life and he always had this curiosity of like, who am I on this other side of me? Like, who is this Irish part of me? He plays the fiddle. There's so much of him that's wanting to know who he is in that sense. And what was so beautiful about the trip to the Vatican is that he goes and he hears from the Pope, who's the head of the entire institution, and he's so unsatisfied and he's so disappointed. And I remember being with him in that moment. I was filming with him. We got back on the bus and he was so deflated and just completely shut down from how empty it felt to him. And after that, he went and saw the Oblate priest and we didn't know he would go there and he decided to confront him and in a way confess and then once the priest gave him his explanation to that confession, Rick said, that's not enough. And then Rick comes back to town. And what's really beautiful is that one, he goes to the elders dance and you see him at the elders dance with his people in his community, like thriving. And he's a beloved figure there. And then you also see him at the very end at the mission, still tending to the cemetery, yeah. still being the keeper of the Catholic cemetery, mm -hmm. making sure it's polished, finding that grave and putting his finger in the cross and, and making yeah. sure it's uncovered. That contradiction and duality was so important. Yeah, I'd just like to add that we actually filmed the vast majority of Rick's story before my own and being present for Rick's conversation with the Oblate was the last thing that really pushed me towards fully doing my family's 
and my story in the documentary. It was the bravest thing I've ever seen anybody do in my life. And the way I felt about it was, you know, if this guy with his story, who is not an author of this work, is willing to trust us to tell this story, then how can I possibly do a story about a search at this mission that is character driven without going there with my own story, my own family's story, knowing what it is yeah. on some level? So I'm gonna go full circle here. I was really struck as well how you shot Rome. I've never seen Rome shot this way before. Mm. It's really amazing. And I compare it to the earlier approach where it's very clear, like we see sugar cane clearly. Rome, you shoot the angles, you shoot this hot angle sometimes, you just have to pull focus of the background, they're blurred. We're not ceiling, seeing that amazing ceiling, the framing of the stairs, the circle down really felt almost frightening to me. Mm -hmm. And I really felt like you were trying to show us kind of what it looked like to Rick. Like this, Rick was experiencing both in awe and yet really torn at the same time. I'll just say that we wanted it to feel like a nightmare. You know, this is supposed to be a bit of a, a dreamscape. This is the imperial metropole that besieged our homelands. And we wanted people to be able to feel that without us having to literally say it. It worked. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you got that. So essentially what happened is that this Rome trip was happening. And then we found out that Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, was going to come to Williams Lake, the town we had been shooting in, this whole time to see Chief Willie and do his own apology. So we had to split up. So Jules and I went to Rome and our DP, Chris, had to stay with Justin Trudeau. So this was kind of like a big undertaking for me. Chris and I had shot a lot of film together, but it was the first time that I was like kind of on my own. We had a local person help us out named Mo um, Scarpelli, but I was like the one who had to really burden the cinematography. And Jules and I really had this vision of wanting it to feel like completely from Rick's POV. This world that he has only dreamed of representing the Catholic Church of his parentage, of these things that define him, but feeling so twisted and distorted and out of focus and trying to find his own identity. We wanted it to be about his interiority in that moment. And so we made a very clear aesthetic choice. I researched every part of the Vatican Museum beforehand and wanted that spiral staircase because I knew that it was like the staircase of his mind, the staircase of his journey, and to see people just slowly walking. And in the sound design, we wanted it to feel really echoey. We wanted him to see these images and his face connecting to them and what do they mean to him. What we didn't expect is that the exhibit would end with stolen artifacts from indigenous communities. I just want to, I want to add one thing about all that. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that was awesome about that, we, I can't say the whole entire truth of it, but access in a place like the Vatican is not exactly endorsed. This is a place that is just to, to fully like articulate it is full of loot from the imperial parts of the Catholic church's reach with all sorts of stolen things, right? And in order to get a lot of that footage, we had to be a little bit sneaky on our own side. You know, filming the Vatican Museum, for example, is not exactly kosher. Or in the Vatican itself. Or in the Vatican itself. Right. And the last image in that mm -hmm. series of stolen artifacts is in our articulation of the film, you see this figure that is supposed to be the, the trickster coyote. That's the one time you see the trickster coyote who is the figure, the folk hero, who helped creator make the world in the Salish telling of the origin of the world. And he did it through a lot of trickery. He did it through a lot of tricks and stealing and little things there. And we're, what we're saying implicitly is there's a little bit of trickery going on in the making of this part of the film. 
Well, that's a great place to finish. Thank you so much for being here, folks. Thanks for great having film, us. And I'm really glad I had a chance to speak to you today. Put my eyes in further. So. No, this was a great conversation. Yeah, Yeah, it's so great to be able to articulate all the ideas behind. We really, there are sometimes we're like, does anybody get? Does anyone get all of these crazy (laughs) things that Julian and I talk about all the time? So, (laughs) I learned from Julian the whole time he was doing this film. He was also writing a book. Oh no, kidding! He has a book coming out. It's due in three weeks. (laughs) What's the the name of it? It's called We Survive the Night. It'll be published by uh, Knopf in North America and published into German and French. What you look for that? Thanks to Amos Cochran of EditScore for hosting us for our Sundance 2024 interviews. EditScore is a new music library with an innovative approach to finding music for your film, with a focus on licensing albums with cohesive musical identities rather than single tracks. Listen to the library and learn more at editscoremusic.com. Top Docs is a production of Wooly Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike. Mike.